Our next guest is one of President Trump's staunchest allies in the Senate. But that hasn't always been the case. Back in the 2016 election, Texas Senator Ted Cruz was locked in a bruising primary campaign against then-candidate Donald Trump. Now, four years later, he says it's his faith that's allowed him to forgive. And that's how he's been able to reconcile his relationship with the president, despite the hurtful things that have been said. On this episode, Cruz speaks to us from what he calls his hideaway on Capitol Hill because he was in the midst of voting. In fact, twice he had to break away during our interview so that he could vote. And we're talking to the senator over the phone, which is why it may be a bit tough to hear at times. We dig into how his father, a Cuban refugee, has shaped his immigration policies, how faith factors into his stance on guns and the Second Amendment, and how sometimes the president says things Senator Cruz wishes he wouldn't. Here's Senator Ted Cruz. Senator Ted Cruz, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Paul, it's great to be with you. Thank you for having me. And I know you're busy on Capitol Hill. Are you calling? Are we talking to you from your office right now? Uh, I'm actually in my hideaway, which is the office that that, that each of us has uh, in the Capitol building itself, because we're in the middle of a series of votes. And so, so I'm spending the day running up, running back and forth to the Senate floor, casting votes. I thought it was just a hideaway, just to get away from all the craziness that's going on in D.C. at the moment. So I, I, it could I wish be that it were as well. effective for that, because there's, there, there, there's certainly a, a lot of craziness from which to escape. So, Senator, tell me a little bit about your father. I know that um, he's now a pastor in Dallas, but there was a period where he was struggling with alcoholism. He left your family. You guys were living in Canada. He moved to Texas. He basically moved out, and um, and faith wasn't a big part of who he was or who the family was. Um, tell us a little bit about your father and how and his, the redemption in his, his personal faith story. Well, sure, and, and that... Uh his faith journey and my mother's faith journey ended up having a, a huge impact on, obviously, our family and, and, and my life. Uh, my, my dad's story started in Cuba, where he was born and where he grew up, and, and he fought in the Cuban Revolution as a teenager. And he was imprisoned, he was tortured in Cuba, and, and he fled Cuba in, in 1957 and, and came to Texas with nothing. Uh, didn't speak English wash dishes, making 50 cents an hour. Um, he went to the University of Texas, uh, studied math, became a computer programmer, uh, and he ended up meeting my mother uh, in New Orleans. Uh, she had gone to Rice. She had studied math as well, and she likewise was a computer programmer. So they, they met working together uh, in the oil and gas business uh, programming, uh, and the two of them married, they moved to Calgary um, and, and started their own small business in Calgary. At the time, neither of my parents were Christians. Um, that, that They had both been nominally raised Catholic, but it was not a, a meaningful aspect of either one of their lives, and, and indeed they both considered themselves atheists. Oh, interesting. And th- they were young scientists, they were brilliant, um, and my father in particular had a strong rebellious streak, and, uh, and both my parents were, were, were drinking too much. And when I was three years old, uh, my father left us, uh, and he, he moved out of the house, and, and he, he came back to Texas. He went to Houston uh, and, and left my mom and me uh, up in Calgary. 
And my father was down in Houston. He was working, and, and a colleague in the oil and gas business uh, invited him to go to church. Uh, invited him to Clay Road Baptist Church, which is a small small church in Houston. Uh, and my father went there, and uh, he heard the gospel, and, and he he resisted it. He, he he started arguing. And actually, this friend who had invited my dad to church. Um, he said, I'll tell you what, why don't you come by my house tomorrow and I'll see if our pastor can come over and, and talk with you about the questions you've got. And, and so my father said, sure, he did that. And, and so he went over to the house and stayed there till 11, 12 o'clock at night arguing with this pastor. And, and, <laughs> and as I said, he was an atheist and he was convinced he had all the answers. And, you know, my dad's described to me, he finally, finally at the end, he, he said to the pastor, he said, well, what about the guy in Africa who's never heard the gospel? What about him? Are, are, are you saying he's doomed? And, and the pastor, he was, a, I think, a wise man and, 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 and had the humility just to say, Raphael, I don't know. I don't know about the guy in Africa. But you know what? You've heard the gospel. Hmm. You've heard the message of Jesus. And it, uh, as my father has described it, that brought him to his knees. And, and, and he hmm. became a Christian, uh, asked Jesus into his life, and, and, and it, it turned him around. He, he went to the airport, he bought a plane ticket, uh, he flew back to Calgary, and he rejoined my mom and me. Had he not become a Christian, um, I, I would have been raised by a single mom without my dad and what do you recall about your own childhood? I would imagine that faith was very important in your home, especially after your dad's conversion. It, it, it was, and, and, and the next year, the whole family, we moved down to Houston. So I was four then. Uh, and, and, and my mom became okay. a Christian, and, 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 and it turned her life around as well. Uh, so I, I was blessed to be raised in a Christian home. And so we, would, uh, uh, we went to church every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, every Wednesday night, uh, you know, was raised in the youth group, raised, raised in church. For me, I became a Christian when I was eight, uh, and, and was at a, okay. a camp, had heard the gospel, but asked Jesus to be my, my Lord and Savior. And, and when I was a kid, several times, my father and I together read, read the Bible cover to cover together. Just recently, I had a chance to go back to Second Baptist High School my alma mater, and I was talking to the students, and, and one of the things that I tried to encourage them is, is I said, listen, the foundation of faith that you're learning here, learning the Bible, uh, developing a, a, a relationship with Jesus, that foundation will serve you well the rest of your life. And, and I tried to tell the kids, look, you're going to face challenges. You're going to face times where you feel like the entire world is crashing down upon you. And, and that foundation you're building right now is how you're going to make it through that. And mm -hmm. listen, for, for me, I, I had a period of, of, of rebellion. And I would say in, in high school and in college, uh, I rebelled against faith. I have become a Christian. I've been raised raised in the Word, but but as a did you ever doubt what you what you were taught and what you believed? Ab absolutely, I did. Um, and and I had uh, the rebellion is 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 the condition of man, and and we rebel against authority. That 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 
I was not unique as a teenager uh, in going down that path. Uh, and so, it, it, but but what I found for me, and and so you know, high school, college, my faith was not an active part of my life. I was I had largely pushed it back. But then as I I got older, and I'd say my mid to late twenties, that foundation became something to which which I returned, and, and I'm very glad I did. You tell about your dad, and he came to America with nothing. He didn't. He didn't know a word of English. Uh, he made 50 cents an hour. How do you square your dad's own experiences? He was a refugee with your own personal policies on immigration. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a Christian, too. And we know that the that the, the Bible and the church talks about helping widows and orphans and helping those most vulnerable. How do you square your own personal policies with your personal faith? I, I, I think they are very much consistent and, and interrelated. Um, I, I have often describe my, my views on immigration as, as really being able to be summed up in, in four words. Uh, legal, good, illegal, bad. Uh, and, and I think that's where actually most Texans, most Americans are, which is that I think it is important to secure our border, that it doesn't make any sense not to know who's crossing into this country. And in fact, a, a system that encourages illegal immigration ends up having vulnerable people, ends up having children, little little boys and little girls in the custody of human traffickers who are vicious, violent criminals who, who far too often physically abuse, sexually abuse uh, the, the people that they're trafficking in. And, and, and I, I think it is, it, it is not remotely compassionate or loving to support a system that encourages putting small children or anybody vulnerable uh, into the custody of human traffickers. In, instead, that there's a right way to come to this country. The way to come to this country is legal. You stand in line, you follow the rules, and you come here legally. That's how my father came. He applied initially for, for a student visa, then, that, then, then later when he was persecuted. Uh, he applied and, and became a refugee and ultimately became a, a legal permanent resident and, 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 and then finally a citizen. That's the way the system is meant to work, and, and, and I think we can secure the border, we can keep our country safe, at the same time that we welcome and we celebrate legal immigrants. Our entire country was built by people risking everything for freedom, and, and, and so I think that that legacy we have as a nation of, of immigrants is profoundly important to us. The president of the Southern Baptist Convention, Pastor J.D. Greer, you are a Southern Baptist, has said that splitting up families is way too harsh, and he's even passed a resolution that encourages all elected officials, especially those who are members of the Southern Baptist Church, to do everything in their power to advocate for a just and equitable immigration system. How do those two reconcile? Again, I think they're they're perfectly consistent. Listen, of course, we should not be breaking up families. And, and, and everyone should agree that, that, that kids belong with their parents. Uh, I introduced legislation uh, to keep families together. Uh, now, the, 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 the policy difference on this is, is what do you do with the family when, when they're kept together? And, and a position of many Democrats in, in the Senate is, is, is that they want to release anyone who is here illegally, not hold them, in detention, but just release them and allow them to stay illegal. 
Um, I think that's a serious mistake. I think that's a cruel mistake because doing that incentivizes further illegal immigration. And, and so the legislation that I introduced mandates that families stay together, but they stay together in a secure, safe detention facility. And we double the resources in terms of federal immigration judges, and we expedite uh, the adjudication of their cases. So if they have a valid claim for asylum, adjudicate that and grant them asylum if they meet the legal standards for asylum. But if they don't have a valid claim, if they fail on the legal standards, then adjudicate that quickly and put them on a plane and send them back uh, to their home. And, and, and I think moving swiftly uh, to resolve, resolve the claims is, is the right thing to do. But, you know, one of the amazing things we've seen right now, the, the current policy we have, and, it, and it's driven from, from natural instincts. Look, everyone wants to, see, wants to see kids protected. But, for example, when we saw the, the massive increase in unaccompanied children coming into this country was in 2014 when Barack Obama was president. And, and it directly followed when Obama announced amnesty for those who came here as kids. You know, there's been a lot of coverage in the press of, of kids in cages, which is a horrifying sight. I have visited many of those kids in cages. Those cages were built when President Obama was president. I, I think it is not remotely compassionate to, to want to continue a system that you know more and more children and vulnerable people are going to be abused and assaulted. Instead, what we should do is secure the border and then have a legal system where people can come in the right way. I think that's the much more compassionate approach. All right, Paula, let me pause right now because I've got a minute to run up and vote and then I'll come right back down. Go vote. Go vote. Thanks, Senator. I appreciate it. I'll be right back. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. You had a change of heart uh, regarding separating families. Initially, you were you seemed to be okay with it, but then you pushed back. And as you said, your legislation, you don't want families to be separated. Can you explain that change of heart? Was it visiting the, the, the borders? Did something happen within you? There, there was no change of heart. Um, I, I have been very concerned uh, about illegal immigration and about the human tragedy, the misery that it inflicts, particularly on children. Correct me if I'm wrong, because I just want to be factually correct. Did you not support the president initially when he was separating families at the border? I, I, I did not. And there was some misreporting that suggested okay. I did that, 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 that mischaracterized okay. so what, what I said. So what did you say? So, so what I said at the time is, is, is often when, when parents violate the law, that can have tragic consequences and consequences for the families. That being said, I also introduced legislation that said, let's keep families together, because what was driving this Mm -hmm. is is a really foolish aspect of how immigration law is structured right now, which is that as a result of a decision called the Flores decision, which was a, uh, a lawsuit that was settled, there is a prohibition on detaining any child longer than 20 days. Um, the consequence of that, though, is that what, what congressional Democrats were arguing is, well, any adult that's with the child, if the child has to be released in 20 days, 
you should release the adult as well. What that has produced, I got to tell you, Paula, it is a really stupid system. And what we've seen in particular is a massive increase in family units. But but the, 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 the thing that is interesting is we have created an incentive for people to bring a child. So mm-hmm. we've created a system which is which is both idiotic and cruel. Where if if you're a young adult male, you're you know maybe you're a gangbanger, ganger, maybe you're with MS13. We've incentivized go grab a kid, get a little girl, get a little boy, and if you come up, our immigration rules say you get to be released and stay here, and and we're hearing tragic reports where they're literally renting children to adult males who are not their family members. Because the kid serves as a get-out-of-jail-free club. During the 2016 election, you ran against now President Trump, and you were a big critic. You're now one of his big allies. But some people will say, how can you support someone who said offensive things about you and your family, who said other inflammatory things? I want to ask you, you, you've, you've, you've come full circle with, with President Trump through your interactions with him. What have you come to understand about how faith guides him and is there a time when you saw his faith guide the decisions that he's making in the Oval Office? Well, look, I, I will let him speak to his faith. Uh, what, what, what I'll say uh, regarding me is, is, is that I faced a very simple choice when President Trump was elected. Uh, I had a choice about whether or not to do my job. And, and I, uh, we, we had obviously come through... A rough and tumble primary. That's an understatement. It was, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, there were some hard, the, the, there were some hard shots that that, that were thrown all around, and, and that's the democratic process. Um, but he prevailed, and you know, I, I have a job which is to represent 28 million Texans and to fight for 28 million Texans each and every day, and and I made the decision that look, I I could have taken my marbles and gone home and said, you know what, my feelings are hurt. I don't like some of the things you said and did, so I'm not going to work with you. I think that would have been irresponsible. I think that would have been not doing the job Texans entrusted me to do. And and, and so instead, uh, the week after the election in in 2016, in November, um, I got on a plane and I I flew to New York City and I went to Trump Tower and, and I met I was president-elect. I spent four and a half hours with him and his senior team. And and I said at the time, I said, Mr. President, we have been given an historic opportunity. It is exceptionally rare to have Republican control of both houses of Congress and the White House. And I said, Mr. President, I want to do everything humanly possible to lead the fight in the Senate to deliver on our promises, to do what we said we would do. We can't blow this opportunity. If we blow this opportunity, it may never come again. And, and so that's what I endeavored to do, which is roll up my sleeves and go to work and work hard honoring our promises. So I worked hard passing the biggest tax cut of a generation and, and, and repealing hundreds of job-killing regulations as a result of which we've got the lowest unemployment in 50 years. We have the lowest African-American unemployment ever recorded, the lowest Hispanic unemployment ever recorded. That's transforming people's lives. I've worked hard. To, to, to confirm federal judges, judges who are committed constitutionalists, who will, who will protect the Bill of Rights, who will protect religious liberty, who will protect free speech, who will protect the Second Amendment. 
that is a critical promise we made to the voters, a promise we've delivered on. Mm -hmm. Yes, there, there are many things Donald Trump says and does that I wish he didn't say and didn't do. And, and I don't have the ability to change that. But my focus is on doing my job. And if you look at the substantive results we've been able to deliver for the people of Texas, I'm very proud of the policy record of the last three years. Did your faith play any role in reconciling that relationship with Trump? Look, there's no doubt that, that forgiveness is, is critical to, to what it means to being a Christian. And uh, forgiveness is, is, is something I try to mm -hmm. uh I try to forgive, certainly, as, as, as God has forgiven us. We're, we're commanded to do the same. Going right back to the, the Lord's Prayer, you know, to forgive us uh, our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. I mean, that, that is foundational. It's paramount. No, it's not easy. It, 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 is, it is human, uh, it is human to, to uh, allow your feelings to be hurt and, and to hold a grudge, but... but at the same time, you know, I do think one of one of the reasons I'm I, I feel blessed to be a Christian. You know, politics is can be ugly, hard work. People say nasty things. You know, Harry, Harry Truman famously said, "If you want a friend in Washington, get a dog." <laughs> Such um, a good Every day, every day, people say horrible things. I guarantee you, if you go on Twitter right now. There are thousands of people blasting me, insulting me, cursing me out. Um, that's just the, 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 the divided, angry polity in which we are today. And you're able to forgive them. But, uh, but I, will say, I will say having a, a foundation of faith give, gives you a, an ability not to let that trouble you, to stay focused on, on what you're doing and why. Mm -hmm. um, I believe in what I'm fighting for with everything in my heart. I, I believe in the Constitution and Bill of Rights. I think protecting your free speech, my free speech, your religious liberty, my religious liberty, to follow our faiths and conscience and live according to them, I think that is profoundly important. And, and, and so I try to stay focused on the job I've been given. And, and what a privilege it is. I, I got to tell you, Paula, I wake up every day astonished and thrilled. To, to be in the arena, to be able to be in a position to stand up and fight for principles that matter and make a difference in people's lives. And, and so there's not a day that passes that I, I don't feel both humbled and, and, and immensely grateful for the opportunity to be fighting for principles that matter. Senator, I had a chance to interview Alyssa Milano for Good Morning America a couple of months ago. And she had some very positive things to say about you. You recently met with her uh, regarding gun control and gun reform. And I think she said she met with you because she felt like you could do something about the situation, that you could do something about gun control. But I know that you staunchly believe that we have the right to bear arms. Do you ever feel like, especially squaring that with your faith, are all the lives lost, all the fear, is it worth it? I was very glad to sit down with you. And I appreciated her mm -hmm. coming and being willing to visit. That that, that all started. It started where, where she tweeted out and she said, uh, can someone tell me where in the Bible there is a God-given right to own a gun? I decided to respond substantively on the merits. 
and I said, look, you asked a real question that deserves to be treated seriously without the snark of, of Twitter. Um, of course the Bible has no references to a modern-day firearm, but what the Bible has repeated references to is the right to life and the right to liberty. And, and in fact, since you asked specifically for a scriptural reference when it comes to self-defense, Exodus 22.2 says if a man enters your house, house at night seeking to do harm to you and your family and you take his life, that it is not murder, that self-defense is not murder. Actually, the next verse, though, says if it's during the daytime, in other words, if it's not self-defense, then it is murder. And, and that right is, of course, then reflected in the Declaration of Independence, the, the, our rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It's reflected in the Second Amendment. Which the Second Amendment is not about hunting or target shooting. It is about the fundamental right you and I and every one of us have to protect our families, to protect our lives. And, and, and I ended up inviting Alyssa Milano to sit down and say, let's have a conversation. And let's live stream it. We had a 90-minute, an hour and a half conversation about gun violence and the Second Amendment. And it was live streamed. And, and, and I, I hope and believe a lot of people saw it and listened to it who would never watch Sean Hannity. Um, and, and I think Republicans need to do a much better job not just preaching to the choir, not just talking to, to, to the slice of people who already agree on a particular issue, but, but speaking to young people and Hispanics and African-Americans and, and suburban women. Sutherland Springs was stopped because an individual citizen, Stephen Williford, a neighbor, went and, and grabbed his, his own gun, an AR-15, and he went down and engaged with the shooter and stop the shooter, ultimately uh, stop the shooter and save people's lives. That's an example where if Stephen Williford hadn't risked his life, many right. more people would have been murdered. But not only that, let's take a look at the shooter, because the facts there should make you angry. The shooter in Sutherland Springs, it was already doubly illegal for him to buy a firearm. Number one, he had a felony conviction. Federal law makes it illegal to buy a firearm. Number two, he had a domestic violence conviction. So why is it that he was able to get his guns? Well... What happened is the Obama administration, the Air Force, never reported his convictions to the database. So he went in to buy his guns. They ran a background check. But because the convictions weren't in the database, he came up clean. Now, Grassley Cruz, I introduced in 2013, my first year in the Senate, Grassley Cruz would have mandated a federal audit from the Department of Justice of every federal agency to make sure the felony convictions are in the database. But even more importantly, it directed the Department of Justice to prosecute felons and fugitives when they try to illegally buy firearms. Right now, DOJ doesn't prosecute most of them. If Grassley Cruz had passed, they would have prosecuted that shooter when he tried to illegally buy his firearm, and he would have been in a prison cell rather than murdering those innocent people in that church. And when it comes to gun violence, by the way, gun violence is horrific, and I've spent a lifetime fighting to stop violent criminals, to stop gun violence, I've authored the Grassley-Cruz legislation, which would be much more effective to stop gun violence, because there's two approaches. The, the one approach is target violent felons and fugitives and those with serious mental illness, stop them from getting firearms, incarcerate them when they break the law. That approach but, actually But most works. shooters don't have criminal history, do they, Senator? Most of these hey, active you, shooters don't have a criminal history? It, take, for example... So I have been, these shootings that have happened in Texas, I have been there on the ground. 
Santa Fe High School is 45 minutes from my house. Mm -hmm. I was there within an hour of that shooting. I had been with the victims' families. I've been with the first responders. Sutherland Springs Church, the the worst church shooting in in U.S. history. Uh, I was there the day after the shooting. I stood in that sanctuary with with blood and glass shattered everywhere you looked. And, And I can tell you, by the way, if you look at Sutherland Springs, it illustrates a lot. That's what's effective in stopping crime is targeting the bad guys. Unfortunately, what Democrats do instead is they focus on law-abiding citizens. And, and part of the reason talking with Alyssa Milano was so valuable is, is, is we discovered that if we actually talk to each other with respect and, and not assuming the other side wants people to suffer, then we may be able to find some common ground and solve, solve problems together. All right, I got to run and vote. I'm, I'm sorry, but we're, I got yep. 30 seconds. And on that note, the senator had to rush back to the Senate floor for yet another vote. We appreciate him taking the time to speak with us on Journeys of Faith, and we appreciate you for the listen. If you haven't already, subscribe to the podcast to make sure you get new episodes as soon as they're released. And let us know what you think with a rating and a review. Journeys of Faith, it's a production of ABC Audio produced by Whitney Lloyd, Lewis Millman, Leighton Schneider, and Susie Liu. Thanks again for listening. I'm Paula Ferris.